Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Grant Holicky, and this week on the show, a good friend of mine, Meredith Miller. She still dabbles in some racing and is never very far from her bike. She's the Rafa Cycling Club Chapter Coordinator here in Boulder, and she also works with USA Cycling Cyclocross as a mentor and as a coach. Back when she was racing, Meredith won the 2009 U.S. Road National Championship and was a mainstay on the cyclocross scene for many years as the co-owner and rider of Noosa. This week, Meredith and I are going to talk about sexism in cycling and in a lot of professional sports. We're also going to talk about the Mud Fund because she and I are both big advocates for the Mud Fund. And we're going to talk cross. We're going to talk about whether cross belongs in the Olympics. We're going to talk a little bit about the new World Cup schedule that's coming into place next year. Let's go get off course. Meredith, so how long ago did you retire? Four years ago. It's four years now. My last professional race was the World Championships in 2016 in Zolder. So this past Worlds would have been four years out. Oh, wow. That makes it, that's easy to like do the math on that for you then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was, I was at that race, the last race for you. I coached you for a little bit toward the end of your career. And so we were together for that. And then I had this running joke with you. You have the best retirement ever. <laughs> and and to offset people out there who say worst retirement ever, you dabble a little bit in racing. You go out and so in your words, what are your what is your racing retirement? What does your bike retirement look like? <laughs> well, yeah, everybody gives me a hard time because I do still race my bike. It's hard to just give it up completely. And I think that was kind of part of the I don't know, maybe it was subconsciously part of the plan was to retire from professional racing before I hated my bike. (laughs) (laughs) I still really enjoy racing. I still really enjoy riding my bike. So it was hard to walk away from it. I don't train like I used to. So I'm not doing big UCI races anymore, but I'm still racing locally, specifically going to races to participate in events. Some of it is because I'm at a race working with Rafa and I have the opportunity to jump in. So I'm like, well, I'm here. I might as well. So, (laughs) but you know, as long as I'm still riding my bike, I feel like that's part of what I enjoy. And, and for me, racing too, is going back to see a lot of the family, you know, and friends that I've made over the years and even still making new friends. So it's, it's hard to stay away when you've been in it for over 20 years. So I think I know the answer to this because we worked together for a while, but when toward the end of your career, what did you think retirement was going to be like? Like, what were you looking <laughs> forward to? Because as we all race, there's that thing we're done with, right? Like some people are done with racing. Some people are done with training. So when you got towards the end of that, what were you really looking forward to being done with? Intervals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Grant telling uh, me what to do every day. <laughs> I remember that. I, and it, it, just so everybody knows this, every once in a while, Meredith will decide to do something and she gets panicked and I get a text that says, if I were to do this, what do I need to do between now and then to not be awful? Yes, it's true. And I generally write something back and it contains intervals. And I think one time you actually wrote me back and said, what about without the intervals? <laughs> I know. I mean, that was definitely one of the things I was looking forward to in retirement was no intervals and not having to ride my bike if I didn't want to. You know, with we're in the middle of winter right now, and I mean, I will admit that I still do ride the trainer because I can only go so many days without exercising. And um, having come back from, you know, 12 days in Europe and not getting a lot of 
you know, riding time over there, I came back feeling like I need to eat my fruit and vegetables. <laughs> I need to exercise again. But I, I talked about this last week in the bonus episode. All I ate for the four days that I was in Switzerland was cheese. And croissants. Cheese, bread, and bad yes. beer. And I came home and got home on a Monday night. Uh, and Tuesday, we almost, so Monday night we landed and I got Wendy's cause it was so late at night. Right. And then Tuesday we always do pizza. And this is for everybody out there who knows my wife's a registered dietitian. We do pizza every Tuesday night. So we have pizza last night. We actually had a real dinner and I, don't, I think I only ate the salad, right? All I yeah. did was eat the greens because, yeah. and you were there for two weeks. Yeah. It's it. That's one of the things that always shocks me when I come back from Europe or frankly, from Montana, that all, <laughs> all I want is a salad. Yes. All I want, I mean, for the days that we're at the house in Sittard with USA Cycling, there's a chef that comes in yeah. and cooks dinner for everyone every night. So, you know, that's, that's, we're pretty lucky. We're pretty fortunate in that way. But then, you know, the rest of the trip, we're staying in a hotel and the hotel did what they could. But, you know, the first night we show up for dinner, it's uh, French fries and, I don't even remember. One night we had a whole, each person had a whole chicken. <laughs> a whole chicken. I mean, it's yeah. like the Blues Brothers. Yeah. Two whole fried chickens <laughs> and, and a Coke. Yeah. <laughs> and trying to explain to the hotel then the next day when we wanted sandwiches for lunch, just, just put the meat and cheese out. We'll make our own. <laughs> they don't understand that no. every sandwich was pre-made yeah. with the mayonnaise and yeah. the everything oh, on God. it. And you're like... Uh, okay, all right. That's just how they do it. Here. I I was laughing at Jesse, who said how it, how I was talking to the staff, and he's like, "What was that? The first night it was like chicken cubes in this white sauce, and I had yeah. said no white sauce, right, right." So I mean, that's that's Switzerland, yes, and it's Europe in general. Yeah. But so intervals. Let's yes. get back to oh, our that, original that. point. We're gonna get off course a lot here. <laughs> <laughs> Meredith and I, I enjoy talking to one another, but. Yeah, so you were you were ready to be done with the intervals. Yeah. Were you really ready to be done with race day? No. And cuz you no. always enjoyed that. I did. I I I've, I've always enjoyed racing, so I was looking forward to not doing the intervals. Um looking forward to the days where I didn't have to ride my bike if I didn't want to, but also the competition was getting so strong and the younger racers were getting so fast, you know? So it was just it was starting to be challenging to keep up anymore and and that that's hard to deal with, you know, the ego takes a bit of a blow and, you know, and so, um, yeah, so I kind of had to decide like what, what, what's going to make me happiest here. And so, um, and, and just injuries and body issues as you get yeah. old, you know, we, I'm starting to have that OLD, you know? <laughs> um, and, and so, yeah, you're so old, man. Yeah. Hey, I just turned 46, no yeah, spring chicken, but, right. uh, yeah. yeah so, I mean, that it was a lot of things combined, but, and, and part of it though, that scared me was I didn't know what was going to be next. Yeah. And, and to some degree that might've been what kind of prolonged my <laughs> retirement was I didn't know what was going to be next. And so that's, that's a scary part for a lot of athletes. And I've, I've, you know, talked to a lot of cyclists who, yeah, don't know what's going to come next. And that's a really scary feeling. So you, those people who don't know a lot about your career, you you grew up playing soccer, mm-hmm. played soccer through your four years of college at Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And kind of tell me then how you found the bike. <laughs> so when I graduated 
from college in 1996, a very long time ago, um, there was no women's professional soccer league. You either had to be part of the national team or go over to Europe and play. And I, I wasn't good enough to be part of the national team. And going to Europe to play soccer just did not even cross my mind, which is funny because that's kind of where my cycling career years later kind of took off. But anyway, at that time, didn't want to go to Europe and play. I was pretty grounded in Madison, but I had been an athlete since I was six. So I needed, I needed sport. It was, it was me. It was who I was. And my boyfriend at the time had been racing bikes. And so I'd seen a few races and thought, oh, sure, why not? This looks pretty fun. I knew nothing about cycling. Absolutely nothing. I mean, I, of course, I had a bike in Madison. You needed a bike to get around campus there because it's so big. But that was about the extent <laughs> of my cycling at the time. So with um, with Saturn, with Tom Schuler being in the area, we had a huge uh, bike swap every year. And so that's where I got a bike. Um, and the, Mad the cycling community in Madison is huge. It's massive and they're very gracious and generous. And so I had friends help me put a bike together and then joined this team called Famous Footwear, which was a cycling club and racing team. And I joined the racing team. And so I wasn't like this person who came, you know, who just dabbled in riding bikes and somebody said, oh, you know, you're really strong. You right. should try racing. Like I started cycling to race. Yeah. And that was kind of how I got into it. So that was, I think I got a bike, you know, summerish or fall of 1997. And then in 98 is when I started racing. And I spent my first year racing in Madison. Uh, the last races I did around Wisconsin was actually super weak. I had just upgraded to a three. So I got to race with all the Saturn ladies. Oh, so cool. like Dee Dee yeah, and yeah, yeah. Susie Pry. I mean, all those fast women. And I did two crits and two kind of road races and I got blown out the back of the crit <laughs> so fast, was able to hang into the road races and then moved to California after pretty much at the end of August. And so got out to California and, and obviously a much bigger state, cycling is huge there, but it took a little while to figure out where the races were and stuff. People would drive, you know, four or five hours yeah. for a weekend of racing, which in Wisconsin, you didn't do that. So like in 99, I didn't really race that much because I, we were trying to figure everything out. And I still was sort of racing with the team in Wisconsin. And so just doing the races that were right around Berkeley. And then I joined a team in Santa Cruz, the Santa Cruz spokesman. And so then I started figuring out how everybody, you know, carpooled four <laughs> hours to drive. Right. And they they would always have two races on the weekend. So you'd like all hole up in a Motel 6 or whatever and um, and then race the two races and, and drive back. And so in California is when I really started to um, really kind of fall in love with cycling. But I was also in grad school. So I was working on my master's degree at San Francisco State. And what probably should have taken me two years to, to get my graduate degree took me four because I started racing more and traveling and really kind of stretched out those four years that, we, that I was in California and then moved to Denmark where I started racing full time. I, I, I want to take a little bit of a step back to something you said because I went through a really similar experience in how I found the bike. And I found triathlon first, but I, I think it's a little bit of a, a misnomer now that you can walk from no cycling background and walk into cycling, especially in a town he, like here, right? Yeah. So we see these kids growing up and we can talk about Eric, Maddie, 
their parents rode bikes. Mm-hmm. They raced mm-hmm. bikes. I mean, one of the great examples of that is the Ekmans, right? Yeah. Like Robin, <laughs> Robin, and I hope they're listening. Robin and Yannick's dad can still kick their butt. Yeah. <laughs> they and have a hard time keeping up with Jurgen. None of us can keep up with Jurgen, yeah. but um, but we didn't have that. And and one of the things that I always think is really interesting to see is that slightly older riders like you and I, I always love it when our parents come to races because our parents don't look like people that race bikes or my dad calling me going, how are the races going? And I'm explaining the whole thing. And he goes, well, tell Max, good job. It's like, yeah, it was Eric, but <laughs> all good, man. <laughs> but, yeah. but you know, we, we have this barrier to entry now in some ways that people feel like they need to grow up racing bikes. Mm-hmm. But um, I think on both sides, the men's side and the women's side of the Peloton, you have these people that didn't grow up racing bikes. Yeah. Um, so, like, I think we need to find more of that way to say to people, hey, yeah, just come in and don't just ride your bike. Come in and race. Yeah. And um, it, especially, I think, in cross, because it's just one of those things that it doesn't matter. Just, yeah. you can be overwhelmed, but just go race your bike. You, right. You can get away from everybody. If you crash, it's your own fault. It's not like a crit, right? <laughs> well, mostly. <laughs> mostly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. what I mean. If you yeah. get away from everybody, you're probably right. going to be okay. right. But I just wanted to kind of come back to that because you and I have the same background in that it was done with the sport we were doing, yeah, but not ready to be done with sport. Right, right. Yeah, my parents, I mean, <laughs> they they were they were athletes in high school, um, and then you know, but they've always been sports fanatics. I mean, they they. I can't call my mom if the Chicago Cubs are playing because <laughs> she just she's too into what's happening in the game. I'm like, okay, mom, I'll call you later. <laughs> or like, you know, with the, they're a huge Chiefs fan, so of course I got an earful about the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl. But meanwhile, you know, we were in Europe and had I, we were asleep yeah, while that was going. Didn't on. even know it was happening. <laughs> <laughs> so they were always sports fanatics, but never. I think they would kind of scratch their head when I told them I was going to race bikes and like we don't understand what that means. I'm like, well, I don't either, but I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> and, you know, they'd come to races and watch crits and be like, you were leading, you were winning. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't win the race. <laughs> but yeah, that sure. That was 10 okay. minutes in. <laughs> yeah, I was exactly. doing my job. Yeah. Yeah. So it took a little while for them to figure out what cycling was about. And it took me a long time. I didn't, I mean, I didn't know who, I didn't know what the tour was. I didn't know Eddie Merckx. I didn't know Connie Car- Carpenter. I didn't know anything you know so and so they they eventually learned from me whatever they know about cycling you raced during a time of incredible development and deepening for women's cycling uh especially towards the end of your career i would start to say but even things like the the uh, Giro rosa and how these races started to come out and looking at your career, you were USA national champion, crit. Road. Road. What yep. year? Uh, 09. This was before I coached her. I don't think I'm that nuts <laughs> <laughs> that I forgot that. Um, that was 09. You retired then in 15. 16. 16. Well, 15 yeah, was the end, yeah. of the, right? What, what changed? Because I think now... If we were to bring Ruth on the program and say, what's it like to be national road champion in 2019 versus national road champion in 2009, I think it's a pretty wildly different thing. Oh, definitely. And that's only a decade. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would say while I was racing, 
there were a lot of ups and downs still. I mean, there was a peak of women's racing when like T-Mobile mm-hmm. was around. Right. Um, the, the women, I mean, from what I hear, uh, the salaries on that team were probably some of the highest salaries even maybe today. Yeah. Um, or at least probably about equivalent to what some of the higher salaries are today. And that was what, right around those six or seven, yeah. some, something like that. And, um, you know, it was just kind of like, whoa, like that was unheard of. And then there was a big drop. Uh, I think that that was probably prior to an Olympic year. <clears throat> and then the Olympics happen. And right. like usual, there's a big drop. You see sponsors leave, teams fold. And then, in, you know, a couple years out from the Olympics, it kind of builds back up again. But I think maybe that like that wave was maybe maybe a little longer and then there was a little more of a lull, but you're right. And then it, it started to pick back up again. Um, but th- so when I won in 2009, um, I, I would say things were pretty strong at that time, but like you said, a lot different a decade later from what Ruth probably experienced, it has experienced since she won nationals last summer. And, and, you know, um, one of the things that's interesting is that women's cycling takes the path of, Olympic sports Mm -hmm. swimming takes that path two years out from the Olympics there's endorsement deals and swimmers make a bunch of money triathletes really see this the sponsorships flow in two two years out of Olympic year and then the list of people who get dropped immediately (laughs) after the Olympics having won something is through the roof men's cycling doesn't take that path because it's not based around the Olympics, but women's cycling for a long time was, mm-hmm. and now it doesn't necessarily, it, it can, it's self-sustaining, especially in the States. I think in a lot of ways it's self-sustaining or in the Netherlands, um, it's self-sustaining in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And that's probably one of the biggest changes that's gone along with that. I, I almost feel like there was, when you won cross Vegas in, what was that? 13, 14. 14. I can't get any of my dates right. (laughs) It all blends together. But I mean, that was almost, I guess the cross community was really big into women's cycling because Mm -hmm. of Katie and yourself and Amanda Miller at the time and Georgia and just this incredible field. That almost was a bigger deal in some ways. Yeah. People still talk about me winning Cross Vegas. (laughs) and and it's funny it's like well yeah that was that was probably the biggest result i had in cyclocross well yeah i mean because i was you know on the podium a couple of times at nationals but nobody remembers that i mean (laughs) everyone remembers katie compton winning 15 back-to-back national championships so yeah for me everyone's like i remember when you won cross (laughs) vegas and then i think the next year it was a world cup yeah i think it was a world cup the next year and it was like Matt, Matt, you know, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. okay, now all the Euros are here and yeah, whatever, you're not, still not top the same 10. result. Yeah. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, you know, and then speaking about the Olympics, to, in some degree, I think that in cycling, maybe it's a little different now, but I think in cycling, women, uh, the, the Olympics are more important. Just in some ways, I, I think it's changing for yeah, the I men. Yeah, I think it's changing it's now. It's becoming more important for the yeah. men. Um, but without a doubt, I mean, it was the biggest race out there for years because the other races just didn't get any attention. Right. I mean, we talked about, like, Jana asked me when we were talking about Worlds, what's going on with the Belgians? And I said, well, you know, the big thing is they don't invest in women's cycling at all. Mm-hmm. So their women results are going to be one-offs. Yeah. And that's Belgium. Yeah. Right? So... 
right next door, the Netherlands is a very different story. Very different story. But for a long time, these traditionally unbelievably good cycling nations, Belgium, Italy, haven't really invested in women's cycling. Mm -hmm. And so they care about it when the Olympics come along. But, you know, that's about it. Right. Yeah. And and I feel like that's starting to change. It's certainly changing in certain places. Um, it's not changing in Belgium yet. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I mean, the Olympics were always that that really big deal. And I think the Olympics are always one of those places where there's suddenly a, a egalitarianism to everything. Swimming suddenly huge. Gymnastics is suddenly huge. We all want to watch track and field and we care every bit as much about the women's medals as we do about the men's medals. And unfortunately in the past, that's the only time that was the case. Mm -hmm. And now I think it's starting to change yeah. in cycling. Yeah. And the only unfortunate part is there's what less than half of the women racing in the Olympic road race than there are men. Yep. So it, that's a real shame. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, it, that's there's been some good changes happening and so to you know when that was released how few women were going to be how many spots there were allotted for women in the olympic road race that was kind of i think that was a big blow well and i mean it's it's ridiculous i mean we still go through the thing of the women's race is shorter in cross or the women's race is shorter on the road i mean i think i have always felt like swimming's fairly even but we this is the first time the mile will be a medal event for the women this Olympics. Really? Yeah, because, you know, obviously they can't swim a mile. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> and it, and we have Katie Ledecky who could final in the men's final sure. of the mile at the Olympics. Um, but yeah, that that kind of, you know, we can get off on a rant about, you know, what's what's worse, but the sexism in sport has from the highest levels has yeah. always been the determining factor. I mean, mm -hmm. we can turn around on a local level and argue all we want about where do we put the women's elite cross race versus where do we put the men's elite cross race? And we do. Uh -huh. But when the UCI still says, oh, the women should only race 50 and the men should race an hour, but then the women's races only end up being what, 42 minutes? Oh yeah, because so if you look at the, the race this past weekend for the, the elite men and the elite women, I actually, I don't remember what the women's time finishing they were time close was. Like to, they were just under 50, 50. I think. I think it yeah. was 48 minutes. I want to say, I, I want to say you're right. Well, so then with, and the men's race, Vanderpool, okay, so he was like 107, which I think their races are supposed to be have over, to be an hour, yeah. over an hour, yeah. you know, but then some of those guys were finishing almost an hour 20. Yeah. An yeah. hour 20. Yeah. And so if they're concerned in the women's races that, you know, they, they can't be too long because there's too many women that are going to get lapped or right. too many, you know, there's too much of a disparity between the front end and the back end of the field. And so you have half the field being pulled. I'm sorry. That happens in the men's races too. I mean, only 20 guys were on the lead lap at yeah, world. Exactly. And so that's about half the size of the field. I think they might have started with close to 40. Yeah, they it's were a smaller field. They were mid 30s. But, yeah. but, but we were joking that if they if they really had run the 80% rule, I was talking to Steven after yeah. the race and he goes, I'm going by 80% going, all right. Well, yeah. And, and the guy just kind of looked at me and I'm riding by him going, you got to pull. No, nope, you're not going to. Oh. <laughs> and he goes back out for another 11 minute lap. Yeah. And came in at almost 120. Yeah. I mean, but they could have theoretically pulled Hyde and he was 16th. Yeah. 16th. 
And he was, I mean, he was eight and a half minutes down. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they and, l- let him finish. And so, I mean, obviously Vanderpool won by a minute and a half, I think, you yeah, know. There's that. Two minutes to, <laughs> to third. So, yeah, he's setting these incredibly fast lap times. But, I mean, it's happening in the men's race, too. And yes. so, you know, that's that at least that particular argument for why they can't let women race longer just it doesn't, doesn't hold water no. anymore. And, and especially at Worlds when I mean, OK, you want to make the argument at a ran, random UCI race where the women are first and the men are second. You got to hold the timeline, this and that. But we're at Worlds. The women are the headlining event on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Nothing's after them. Mm-mm. We're not in a hurry to get no. out of there. No. And then we turn around on Sunday and we're it's dark. I mean, right? yeah, you're yeah. going into the end of this thing. And, and it's a boring race. It, oh, it, I mean, okay, it, maybe it, second yeah. and third. That was a good fight to the finish. But how exciting was a finish of the women's race? Oh I mean, God, I everyone is still talking about that. And you know? as well they should, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a phenomenal finish. And 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 so as we as we talk about this stuff and we get into this and we and we're talking about making it equal and and if we look in the states we've we've said that for a few years in the states i mean yeah katie has been dominant on the national level but the women's racing in the states is great we have Mm -hmm. these young women coming up that are phenomenal like uh, the world cup this year and last year where maddie started making her breakthroughs you got a 17 year old out there doing this katie klaus you have the you know racing at these high levels and I, I, you know, I, I, lo- I like talking about how it's changed, but man, like, this is one of the things that I, I kind of always said about watching women's soccer. Women's soccer is very highly skilled. It's very fun to watch. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, it's a more aggressive game than the men's game. To me, that's a little bit of women's cycling. Yeah. The, the, the rules go out the window in terms of this is the way it's supposed to go. Here's right. the script. Right. Yeah. People throw the script yeah, out. Exactly. And it's a blast. Like even Maldigam, the race uh, Wednesday after Worlds, the, the defining characteristic is Anna Marie versus off the front. Her teammate decides to chase her down and Yara Castellan comes flying across the gap carrying three or four other women and then they pile up behind her. I mean, it's a great race. It's <laughs> awful that they piled up. But the men's race, it's too scripted, right? Yeah. You're never going to chase down a teammate. Right, You're right. never going to do this stuff. So. Yeah. I think it's a shame, and I think if anybody out there is listening, take the time to watch all the women's races, in my opinion, from Worlds. They were pretty fantastic. And right now, there's dominant racers in the women's field, but there's Mm -hmm. three or four or five of them. Mm -hmm. And that's what's fun to watch. For sure. I mean, I think everyone would have put the three Dutch women who ended up on the podium. They would have put them on the podium prior to the race. It was a matter of which order. Right. And some people guessed it. I would not have won that bet. <laughs> but um I, yeah. And so you've got you've you've got a deep field in the women's races, you know, and I mean in the when in the men's races, of course, everyone I mean, it's phenomenal to watch Vanderpool what he, and do what he does best. You know, he's amazing, but it it certainly doesn't make for exciting racing. I mean, no. I was I was at the race and I was checked out after the first lap of the men's race like all right, what's going on? I mean, right. I'm standing by the pits, and the first few laps is exciting to watch all the Belgians come through yeah. and do bike changes oh all God, at the same nuts. time when there's some doing the left side, some yeah. doing the right side, and then Pidcock just rides through them all <laughs> right straight down the middle, and you're like, okay, that was cool, but then, yeah, I mean, the the head of the race was that was so predictable, 
And yeah, and during the women's race, we're screaming, like, yes, what are you doing? Yes, or, oh, my God, look at that. We send us back again. <laughs> Why didn't you keep going on that attack? Yeah, yeah. And, and well, and, and one of the great things for us on the U.S. level is we can watch the women compete, mm-hmm. right, across the board. Yeah. And this goes for the road, too. Yeah. As you watch Ruth win Tour Down Under, our women, American women, are among the best in the world. Yes, at every discipline, mm-hmm. uh, we can get into the track and the team pursuit. We're phenomenal. So let me ask you this: from your side of the coin, why is that? A and B. As a second point, maybe we'll come back to it. But what do the men need to do? God, that's a loaded question. I think <clears throat> on the women's side, part of it is that women women cycling is so new that American cycling started at the same time kind of women's cycling or was even ahead of women's cycling globally. So whereas on the men's side, I mean, cycling has been so entrenched in the culture in Europe um, for so, so, so long that I don't think, I don't know, the American men weren't really part of that, you know, culture growing up. Whereas now, you know, for, so 1984 was the first year the uh, the women's road race was in the Olympics. That's not that long no. ago, you know? And so I, I just think women were part of the culture as it started, yeah. you know, for in America and across the globe. Um, and so everyone kind of came up together and, um, but in the men's side, it's just the men are catching up to what the rest of the world grew up with, yeah. you know? And so that's part of it. Um, what do the men need to do? I don't, I, that's a hard question to answer. I don't know. I don't know what it is that, I don't know if it's, I don't want to say work ethic because I know the guys. It's not that. It's not, we it's know not the work guys ethic. That, it's right. not, and I don't think it's the volume of training. I just, I don't know. It's just culturally entrenched in their blood. Well, <laughs> there's, there, there is, one of the things that, that always kind of jumped out at me is, is honest to God football. If you take it, our, we're so big and that sport is so big and you take that sport and honestly, baseball mm-hmm. off the table for women. Yeah, I know there's softball. It's a completely different sport. Mm-hmm. You take those two huge sports off the table for women. The women have to go into other sports. Yeah. And, and one of the things that we find of, of the Dutch women, why they're so good is they're racing from five years old. They're, they're, they're not just on a bike riding to school. They're trying stuff on a bike. I mentioned this in the bonus episode about the Dutch women hopping the barriers, the junior Dutch women hopping the barriers Uh, and Celine Del Carmen Alvarado taking a video of it and gushing over her teammates who are six years younger than her hopping the barriers. Yeah. Yeah. And and we have that in the States for our women too. Yeah. Right. Bridget Tooley is an American yeah. woman, you know, jumping the barriers. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's awesome to see that. But the uh, we have great athletes entering into cycling, into triathlon, into those things. We still have great athletes doing that for men, but we have less of them. Yeah. I don't know. I maybe on the women's side, I think it's the men's side too, but especially on the women's side, I think we're starting to see the riders coming into cycling at that's their first sport. You know, they're yeah. being introduced to cycling at uh at, at five, six years old. I mean, the Katie Klauses and oh, yeah. you know, I mean yeah. she 
yeah, she's probably been racing a bike almost as long as I have. It feels like it, doesn't it? I mean, she was competitive at 13. Yeah, I mean, I remember when she first started coming over here from Utah, she had to come here to get the points for USA Cycling and stuff. And I mean, Georgia Gould and I were like, (laughs) who is this little twerp back here? (laughs) You know, Right behind us. And the only Mm. advantage that we had at the time was that she didn't have the endurance. Right. You know, she could keep up with us for the first half of the race and then she would fall off Uh because she wasn't used to racing that long yet but man when she uh when she started racing longer she was right there on her heels yeah it was hard to drop her well and it's and it's yeah it's fun to see that i think one of the things that may be the case too for for our man i was talking a little bit with Stu thorne about this out at at worlds he said we're too big Mm -hmm. the country we're just too big yeah we can't get everybody together in the forest to train together And, you know, he's talking to me. He's like, you got some of that in Colorado with your crew. And I said, yeah, I do, but I don't have the terrain. Right. Right. You right. know, the, I, I, where am I going to take my guys to go do a simulated cross course around here? We do a little bit at the res. Valmont doesn't work because we're going to hit a dog. <laughs> and, or it's going to get closed down when it gets wet. Right. Or we're going to hit a person and we'll be in more trouble for hitting the dog. But because <laughs> <laughs> it's bolder. But it, like, so if I had the terrain that's on the East coast yep. and the crew I had, maybe we'd see something different, mm-hmm. but everything, if we at every level and every discipline, if we got to want to go compete, we got to go over there to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And in a lot of ways for the women, some of the best competition in the world is here. So mm-hmm. we can race each other in the States for cross mm-hmm. or for road domestically mm-hmm. climb the ladder and be racing a Meredith Miller or racing a Katie Compton mm-hmm. or, and, and I think you see it like this year with Clara and Becca really closing the gap to Katie. Then they go over to Europe and they have these phenomenal finishes in Europe. Mm-hmm. And we saw it before with somebody like Amanda Miller, who had that year where she was, what, third in the World Cup? Yeah. And 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 so we can do that. Yep. But we, it's hard to do that on the men's side. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, this has been a conversation for years now since we lost the USGP, but we we need a series in the U.S. We absolutely need, I mean, again, because the country is so big and there are so many races, of course you're going to stay, you know, p- these teams don't have infinite amounts of money. So you have to, you know, and you end up planning on going to the races that are closer to you regionally. And so then you end up having the Kerry Werner here and the Stephen Hyde over here and the Curtis White over there. And that's not, you know, it's great for them. They're winning races, they're getting points, money and all that. But for the level of the sport, for them to go over to Europe, they're not in the same races pushing each other and raising the level of each other. You know, when they're kind of racing at the front or riding away from the rest of the field, It's not necessarily teaching you a whole lot or, you know, helping you raise that level. Maybe on the, I mean, it can be the same on the women's side too. You know, we're too, too spread out. And, but so I think we're missing that series or missing those important races where everybody comes together. And we're, because of that, we're also missing the story. You know, I I know that I've talked to, you know, journalists in the past and they're like, well, you know, when there's five different races on any given weekend, there's really no story to tell. Okay, Carrie won, won again or Clara won again and because, you know, it was a, a small field. Right. And it, that was sort of predictable. As Nor expected. is there an ongoing process, right? You exactly. can't be in the fourth race of the year and be talking about the overall. Right, right. right? And, and we have this opportunity on the men's side right now with three very, very 
impressive men's riders and mm -hmm. Carrie, Curtis, and Steven. And then these U23 riders, or just recently U23, like Lance Haydit, mm -hmm. uh, Gage, mm -hmm. Eric, who are coming up and fit, like we can have Andrew Dill, we can have a five, six person race at the front of the race. Yeah. And that doesn't even talk about Tobin now coming back from injury or Cody had, Cody Kaiser yeah. had a great had a year last year. So we have that opportunity. You're right. We just got to throw them all together again and yeah. and battle that way. Yeah. And and going back to the terrain, you know, Jesse, Anthony, and I were talking about this, and Pete Weber. I mean, we've you know have these conversations of like, okay, if we were to build a cross school, so mm -hmm. to speak, or you know, venue, whatever, in the U.S., where would it be? Where would where could you go to get all the elements of the terrain that you experience in Europe? And it's really hard because like, okay, we have, like you said, we have Valmont, but mm -hmm. as soon as it gets muddy, it gets closed down right. or you can't ride the mud here because it just, you know, your bikes don't yeah. roll after a yeah. while, you know? And so where, where could we do that? If that were ever a possibility, you know? Hershey, Pennsylvania. Oh, really? If you want <laughs> Belgium in the wintertime. Yeah. It's like middle of Pennsylvania or upstate New York, but upstate New York yeah. is too cold. Yeah. Right. So it's right. got to be a little dreary. It's yeah. got to hold the moisture yeah. for weeks on end. Yeah. And it can't be covered in snow and you right. got to have terrain. I'm telling yeah. you, man, like Western Maryland, Western Virginia or central Pennsylvania. That's where you got to okay. go. All right. Jesse, did you hear that? And yeah. Jesse, <laughs> mark it down. That's where we got to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So speaking of Jesse, speaking of USA Cycling, you spent a lot of time this year working with USA Cycling, especially uh, for the Christmas period, the curse period, and then again at Worlds. Mm -hmm. um, and now you work for Rafa. Mm -hmm. What's the other side of the tape look like? <laughs> what, you know, what, what are you doing now? Mm-hmm that you never thought you'd do <laughs> and, and what surprised you when you got over there? Yeah. Well, so like I mentioned earlier, it was scary, not really knowing what was going to come after retirement. Um, so after worlds in Zolder in 2016, I came home the very first thing I did. So my friend, Jesse Braverman and I started this little communications company, um, for, you know, cycling teams and athletes. And so the first thing I did was come back and I helped, I covered, um, uh, Evie Stevens do the world, the hour record at, um, on the track down in Colorado Springs. And that was like just a couple weeks after coming yeah. back from yeah, worlds. Was. Um, so yeah. I, I kind of jumped right in and then we had a contract with, uh, Canadel Draypack or, you know, what's EF cycling now. Um, so was covering some of those races, doing the social media and all that. Um, I appreciate, I got to go to Perry Bay, tour of California and Utah with the team. But, um, outside of that, I didn't really love being at home doing the social media. Just wasn't really my thing to be kind of following that 24 seven. Uh, so after Utah, I, um, I pulled the plug on that and was kind of in limbo again, but I just, I really wasn't enjoying it. So, um, unexpectedly, this job for Rafa came across my lap and I didn't even really know that they were going to be opening a store here in Boulder. I had been an ambassador with Rafa in 2014, but then when Alan and I started Noosa and we went over to Castelli, then there was an obvious conflict. So, um, so come 20 end of 2016, when I found out about the store opening here, I talked to Pete Lapinto, who was the general manager who opened the store 
And he told me about this job um, called the RCC coordinator, the Rothwell Cycling Club coordinator, which meant that I would be sort of managing the Boulder chapter for the RCC uh, from planning events, planning rides, ride leading. So I was like, oh, you mean I still get to ride my bike? (laughs) This sounds like a dream job. And get paid to ride my bike. So maybe I still am a professional cyclist after all. More so um, now. You probably get paid more right. now to ride your bike than you ever did as a pro cyclist. Yeah, I don't know. It's, no, it's true. It's very true. <laughs> um, and so then eventually, like a year in, then I uh, took on more of a marketing role as well. So kind of have this hybrid thing going right now. Um, planning, still planning events and rides and stuff here for the Boulder store. Um, but then also taking a, a bigger role with managing activations at events that Rafa is a sponsor of or a partner with at different events around North America. So traveling to, so I'm like planning, you know, all the activation for the mid South coming up in March. And then we'll be going to, you know, Sea Otter and Dirty Kanza and so all of those. So um, I'm still staying very much in the sports, still using a lot of my connections um, and all the networking that, you know, that I had while I was racing as a professional have now kind of landed me in this job, which, you know, I still get to stay in it. And because of the flexibility of working from home from this job, then that also allows me to, you know, take a couple of side projects on like going to Worlds as a coach mentor, you know, with USA Cycling. So I I found this really interesting years ago when Breeze started Breeze Bars mm-hmm. to be on the other side of the sponsorship gig. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, for years we were the athletes asking for stuff. Right. Now, and as a coach, I run into this too. Now we are the people being asked for stuff. Mm-hmm. What's the advice? Because <laughs> you know, because I learned a ton of stuff, right? Like yeah. I I sat there and got all these emails for people wanting to be sponsored by Breeze Bars, and we were a small company. Yeah, and I was reading some of these things, going, "You got to be kidding me, man! Really." <laughs> And, right. and, and I remember reading a couple that I could have written, like I could have written that thing. I probably wrote the exact same email five uh-huh. years previous and uh-huh. was like, you bleeping bleep, bleep. Oh crap. I did that. Yeah. What just give a really small piece of advice to anybody, you know, high level amateur pro athlete looking for sponsorship. You're on the other side of the coin. Now, what's your advice? Well, first, I mean, what's a lot different now than when I was racing was the social media aspect of it all. You, good or bad, I kind of have I have pros and cons and different mixed feelings about it. But you kind of have to know how to create your own brand nowadays. So it's one thing to how you sell yourself or whatever, you know, to be on a team and that this is my role and this is why I should be part of this team. It's a little bit different, you know, when you're actually looking for sponsorship, which in road racing, you can't really do because you're you fall under the umbrella of the team sponsors. Cyclocross uh, gives you that you know more flexibility, so that's where you're really looking for your and individual. gravel may now too. Yeah, oh, and gravel too for sure. So it's kind of like you really have to create your brand. You have to know what your story is. Um, you have to again, good or bad. You have to like really kind of broaden your reach, you know, um, and you have to know how to be authentic about it though. That's the biggest heart, uh, like the biggest part of it. And, and which is challenging for some people, not everybody's wired like that yeah. to, to be able to sell themselves, so to speak. And, you know, in an authentic, genuine way that doesn't seem so scripted. You know, when I was racing road, we actually were 
asked to tweet about certain, like a sponsor so many times a month, you know, or else we would receive a fine. And I had a big problem with that because, you know, you, I mean, you're on a team and you're, you have these, all these different sponsors and some you really appreciate some nutrition or whatever it might be just doesn't work for you. Right. So I'm not going to tweet about something that doesn't work for me in a very genuine, natural way. Yeah. There's no way and you can. No. And that would come across. And so we eventually had to sit down and go through a list of all of our sponsors and everybody would check off the ones that like meant something to them that they had that connection with that they could you know, authentically say something about. Um, and I think that that ended up working better. Um, but you can, you can read, you know, who the good athletes are, you know, who, who just, their mind just clicks in that way that they can tell a story about a sponsor without you thinking that, Oh, they were asked to do this, you know? And then there's other athletes, like you can tell they had, had to, you know, (laughs) post something about a sponsor because it's in their contract and, you know, it's just not in their, genes that they they can do that in a way that you don't read it and go, oh, this is a sponsor plug. But, and, and no fault of their own. I mean, that's, but that's just, you know, that's just how it is these days. And so, you know, if you can learn how to turn the story, uh, to build that brand and to tell the story about your sponsors, you know, that goes a long way. I think people, I think that the, you made the point, one of the things that jumped at the story yeah. Have a story. Yeah. You know, your story matters and be willing to tell that story and let the story evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to come back to this in a little bit or a different episode with you, but I want to talk about Noosa and what you and Alan were able to do there because you did a very, very special thing for two yeah. years yeah. in a way that other people just never did it. Yeah. Um, but I want to stay on topic a little bit with the ambassador, not the mentor program, more of what you did with USA Cycling Mm -hmm. for the end of this cross season. And just tell me about that and and tell me what it meant to you or what you learned. Yeah. Well, I actually didn't go over for the Christmas period. Um, I was invited to go, but of course it's a hard time to go when, you know, you're there for Christmas and New Year's. And so it means being away from the family. And I did that when I was racing. So it's a little hard to wrap my head around missing, missing out on family time and being with my husband. Yeah. You and you spend enough time away from (laughs) exactly. (laughs) So it was important that, you know, we, we visited his family and my family this year. So, um, to have not had that opportunity to see the family would have, you know, would have been difficult. So, so I didn't go for the Christmas period. I went over for the world's block. So I was there for the Hooker Hatter world cup and then worlds. And, and that was special because this was the first year that the UCI hosted a junior women's standalone race at the world championships. So first year in history. So last year, well, prior to 2016, all the women raced together period. Didn't matter how old you were. 2016 was the first year of the U23 women's race. And then in 2020 was the first year of the junior women's race. So I was able to be a part of that. So USA Cycling took a full team. We took six women. Uh, I think because uh, Maddie was the continental champion, the Pan Pan American champion, we got an extra rider. So that's why we had six. It's same with the Netherlands. Um, That's why they had six. And so it was, I think we were the only two countries to actually bring a full team. I don't think there was even another team that brought five. 
No, but that was the biggest women's race. Yeah. That was the biggest field yeah. of all the women's races yeah. at Worlds, which was really, really cool, right? 50-some women, I think. It was amazing. It was so cool. And, you know, a couple of the, the U.S. riders finished the race and were in tears, weren't happy because you know, it's the worst race I've ever had or, (laughs) you know, something went wrong. It wasn't great. And I just looked at him and I'm like, but do you know what you just did? You know what you were just a part of? You just made history. Like you were part of history today. So remember that first, you know, and then you can go back and, and analyze and, you know, tear things apart. But for you, this was a, like, this was a stepping stone to the next phase right. of your career. Well, and that's why I chuckled a little bit when you said that they were in tears after the race, <laughs> because it, it, I end up saying that after Worlds all the time for the development riders. Yeah. And different thing with elite riders yeah. who are really trying to, but man, like, look around. What yeah. did you just get to do? There was 10,000 yeah. people there for yeah. your race. And and I think that's something we got to give our athletes more of, right, is... Mm-hmm. The thing you're going to remember in 40 years is not the medal. It's going to be the experience. Experience, for sure. And I think at the junior level, you know, so this is one of the things that I think Jesse is trying to change with the world championships and, and all that for cross is that, you know, by the time you get to the elite level, it's not about the experience anymore. It's about are you medal capable, medal capable or are you top 10 or, you know, whatever it is, uh, junior level. Yeah. For, for those women, it was about the experience and okay. And now you've experienced, now, you know, what you're up against, you know, with the, the Sheerans and (laughs) and the pucks and, you know, so now, you know, now, you know what to go home and, and work on. And, um, you know, and then as you get older and older, you know, those, the criteria to get to the world championships is going to be tighter. It's not going to just be about the experience anymore. And so that's why, you know, for the elites, you saw part of the reason why, you know, you, you saw fewer, fewer riders, some, opted not to go even though they could have but um and some of that's the travel when you're not Mm -hmm. being able to be based and centered Mm -hmm. and we saw that with uh last year um uh when it was up in norway uh denmark close (laughs) scandinavia i didn't go to that one so we'll just we'll chalk it up to that yeah they both have red in their flag <laughs> um, that, that, yeah. was, that was a typical American statement right there. Um, but yeah, when the travel's in there too, that's yeah. that's more you have to support and more you yeah. have to do. And yeah. that made a lot of sense yeah. for this year. But with the mud fund, one of the things that the, a lot of the riders were able to do was afford, they, they stayed over all the way through the Christmas period until Worlds, which in the past, you know, a lot of those riders come over, have gone over for the Christmas period, go home. It also is different now because with nationals being in December, you don't have to come home in January and then turn around and go back again. So a lot of the riders were saying that that was their, a lot of the riders who had been to Europe before and done that Christmas period, go home, go back for worlds. They appreciated being able to stay this year and the mud fund helped them go to Spain and do a training camp in between. So that also helps because they weren't just staying in dark gray, cold, yeah. rainy, wet, you know, yeah. <laughs> Holland and, and Belgium. They got to go to a little warmer and climate and sunshine and, and do some training, get out of the, you know, kind of stuffy house and sittered yeah. <laughs> and then come back and be refreshed, you know, for the last couple of World Cups and Worlds. Well, without a doubt, I think it made a huge difference for our riders in terms of not being jet lagged, mm-hmm. in terms of being there and being ready. And I think we saw it, right? We saw that that with um, some of the performances by yeah. 
U23 men, mm-hmm. um, the, the U23 women, yep. the junior. I, you're just not going to see quite as much of that when they fly over. Do Hoogerheide. Because you've done that, oh, right? I have. And yeah, you fly in midweek. Yeah. You're racing Hoogerheide on a Sunday. Yep. And then you're there and you race Worlds come Saturday or Sunday. And the next week, you're only on the ground for 10 days, 11 yeah. days before you race Worlds. Yeah. And that is hard. It, 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 it's surprising that I would almost venture to say it's easier to just fly over race the next day. Right. That there's always that conversation of like, how many days yeah, we've had do that you conversation. fly in? Yeah. I mean, do you, I mean, without being there for a full week, you're still jet lagged, you're, you know, and you're, you're trying to race a world cup. So then do you fly in just the day before, maybe two days before have a little spin and then you jump in the race mm-hmm. and everybody's a little different. I mean, you know, Katie Compton, she would, a week or two weeks out, she would start um, sleeping. sleeping on the European, you know, time zone to get her ready, get her body ready for that. Um, and and that's hard to do when you're going to bed at I don't know four o'clock in yeah. the afternoon yeah. to wake up at you know whatever midnight, and mm-hmm. it's like all right now what do I do? It's dark I, out. Time but, to go train. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's what she would do to help prepare right. her mind and body, you know, going over. Right, and we've done that with the swimmers when we've done worlds in. Um, Australia or this or that, right? What's our race time and start getting used to that well ahead of time because you just can't adjust. But being over there for a month made a huge difference. And and I've mentioned this before on the show. You're going to hear it over and over again. The mud fund is a pretty tremendous thing. Take the time, search mud fund on Google. It'll take you to the foundation page on USA Cycling and donate. It's it's all donation based. Um, mm-hmm. We have we have some grants coming from bigger corporations that are helping support that. But what 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 was done for the U.S. team in in preparing for Cross Worlds this year in Switzerland was almost entirely from private donation through the Mud Fund. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a big part of that was the Rafa Foundation. Yep. Um, so they they that was a hundred and fifty thousand dollar donation. Um, but and and that money isn't used just for worlds. You know, people have still asked, well, then why didn't you fill the teams? Why right, right. why didn't you take a full team? And it's because it's not again, it's not just for the world championships. It's for you know Jesse and USA Cycling to have camps throughout the year, whether they're here in the U.S. or they're in Europe. It's about the development. And it's about the process, really, of getting to the world championship. So it may not be that year for a certain rider that they're going to get to worlds, but it's part of the development for them across the whole season and across a couple of years before until they are ready to go to the world championships. And then they'll have that support. And that's one of the things that we've and we can get to this on cross as an Olympic sport, but Mm -hmm. it not being an Olympic sport in the States limits some of the funding, uh, a lot of the funding that we're going to get through USOC and some of those other things. So we need that money to be coming from a different place. Right, right. And I mean, and that's, yeah, that's a hard, hard thing. Like in, you know, Belgium, Holland, whatever, even though it's obviously not an Olympic sport for them either, that cyclocross is just so bedded in their culture that, Mm -hmm. you know, People are so excited about. It. I mean, that is their football, right? You know, right. so on any given weekend, the number of people at a race or watching on TV is tremendous. It's huge, and you know, we just don't have that kind of support here. So, yeah, it's private donations and stuff like that that are going to keep uh, keep the development of cyclocross riders in America going. Two things about cross before we leave it. One, we'll start with this. 
should it be an Olympic sport? <laughs> because we're starting to hear those little rumors of people talking about it yeah. now. It came up the other day that the goal is to have it be a trial sport at 2026 or something. I read this the other day, but mm -hmm. it would have to be on snow and ice mm -hmm. or at least partially on mm -hmm. snow and ice. And uh, the, the feedback on it in some ways was this is great. In some ways, this is a stunt. So yeah. where do you stand on that? That's hard. I mean, it's really hard. I feel like, I don't know. Do people enjoy racing on snow and ice? No. I mean, yes, <laughs> no, do. of course. They're, the Czechs are fantastic at <laughs> yeah, it. Max exactly. Chance loves it. We'll get Max yeah. out there for the yeah. Olympics. I mean, snow is fine. Yes. Ice. Uh, Ugh, that, that, that's scary. I mean, I've done it. And my first year going to Worlds was in Tabor. And it was <laughs> an ice rink. And yeah. I was scared to death. Um, and, you know, and it's it's hard, too, because you can't prepare you can't guarantee that you can prepare for that so i it don't changes know the sport it totally changes it you know and it's like what like we were saying here it's hard enough for us to train in mud i mean i guess maybe training in ice and snow would be a little easier be for easier us here, right but now like, but yeah but then the riders and yeah so yeah. it i don't know i mean yes of course i'd love to see it be an olympic sport but i think you know, and then if it was a winter, a winter, I mean, the other question is why not the summer Olympics? Right. I mean, but then your, you know, that falls in the same season as mountain bike and road. So could the summer Olympics handle that when there's so much crossover right. between the athletes and those different disciplines? I mean, can you imagine Matthew Vanderpool lining up for a road race, the mountain bike race, and the cross yeah, race? Yeah, be and fantastic. That would be great. It would be. It would be like. You know what happens in swimming when they do four events or yeah, something. And yeah. obviously they're a little bit longer, but right. I I think it almost fits more more better, more better, or more better. I I mean even if it's a weird timing for it, it yeah. would almost be the start of the cross season that year, yeah. right? It would yeah. come into August. You'd start the cross season a little bit earlier, almost like the World Cups in the states would go, but. What's wrong with that? Because yeah. right now, if you do it on snow and ice, we've seen this almost every time we've had a World Cup or a World Championships on ice. The people who win are not the people who are the best. And it'll change right. everything. Yeah. What was that Huger Heide World Cup that was on snow that year? And um, the Czech guy runs away with it yeah. and wins it. He hadn't been in the top 10 the rest of the year. Yeah. But I mean... It's like if it happens, it happens. But right. does it? Should that be a criteria to be? Able, I mean, and and nowadays, like with global warming and stuff like that, <laughs> can you even guarantee? I mean, so what are they going to do? Go make snow for a cross race? Hey, man, just just watch the struggles with the next Winter Olympics outside of Beijing. Yeah, we yeah. were up there for that cross race a couple of years ago because they had the cross race where they're going to have that venue. Oh. Uh. It's like the Poconos. I mean, that's kind of what it's like. It's not high. It's yeah. not particularly cold. It's going to be a challenge yeah. whether they're going to have enough snow for a lot of stuff. Yeah. And so I think it's going to be that that part of it going forward. It's going to be interesting. I mean, you just keep going higher and higher in elevation. Right. <laughs> right. I know. I mean, mm -hmm. I think if they could if they could relax the criteria and say, OK, if there is snow and ice, Okay, right. great. If there's not though, that's okay. Um, you know, it's still it's still this fall winter sport, but there doesn't have to be snow or ice to be able to be part. But then but then it's like, yeah, I mean, it, there it's it's a hard debate. You know, and then if you did do it in the summer and it was the start of the season, how do you 
train for that, especially if you're an athlete that crosses over into different disciplines. So it's a hard one, but, but more and more athletes are choosing cyclocross as their priority. Whereas, you know, a decade ago, uh, you, that was just your off season, right? you know, right. Uh, you were either a mountain biker or a roadie and cross was just your off season. Well, and some of that might've been fueled by the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, to get all the way full circle back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you see it with Vanderpool, but almost the entire reason he's doing mountain bike is to get a chance to race yeah. for a medal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think I think there's a lot of cross racers, European cross racers, who have said that, that yeah. we branched out from cross to be able to go to the Olympics or ride the tour or do these things. I don't know they'd necessarily do that. Right. If, if cross had that element. Oh yeah. It. I mean, there's some younger riders coming up now who are multidisciplined mm-hmm. and with cross being one and either road or mountain bike and being the other. And if you ask them, okay, do, which one would you prefer to specialize in? Well, the answer is I love cross, but I've got to go with road or mountain bike because they have the right. Olympics or, or they just have, and in the States or they just have teams. Yeah. Or there's just the funding, right? And and we can come back to this another time uh, about about funding and cross, and we will. We are going to visit that. We're going to have an episode about that. The other cross topic mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about with you is the new World Cup. Oh, the schedule, the calendar. So now we have 14 stops on the World Cup, seven in Belgium, seven outside of Belgium, one in the United States, one in Ireland. <laughs> Um, uh, as a former racer and then now somebody who traveled a little bit with USA cycling, sees fairly intimate with all these women and men still, what's it going to do? It's, I, I don't really know yet. I'm waiting to see the rest of the schedule, like the, the DVV, the super prestige, you know, all these other, uh, series that are now going to be competing against the world cup calendar, I'm not really sure. I don't know. And then, I mean, I don't know that it will have a great impact on USA, you know, the racing here in America, because as far as competing with other series, because well, we don't have one anyway. But. Right. And based on the way the calendar looks, we now have more C1s. We lost the World Cup, but the yeah. first release of the calendar has, we have three or four oh, C1s. Oh, has it come out? Yeah. Oh, I missed that. Okay. Um, but it, well, so the World Cup, the points are huge. Mm-hmm. So if you can't do close to a full World Cup, you're going to be left behind with the points, which is how cross racers are ranked to mm-hmm. start races. To me, the Americans are incredibly limited in what they're going to be able to do in terms of racing yeah. that, uh, unless it's Cannondale or unless it's somebody who yeah. really has the ability to go over there. And then furthermore, has the reason to go over there right you know on the women's side with katie and katie canada obviously has the they should be over there they need to get over there with as many races they can do because the women can compete but what do the men want to do right i know i mean we've seen in the last couple years we've seen fewer men go over to europe to do those world cups they don't really haven't really been going over until the end of the season when they're getting ready for worlds Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas we do see more women going over consistently throughout the season and then, you know, having only one World Cup in the U.S., like I know you have to do four races outside of Belgium, I think. Um, they were saying their initial goal was half the races outside half, of Belgium. Half the races, yeah. okay. So what's the incentive for anyone else to come to the U.S. when there's 
enough races that they can go to outside of Belgium. I mean, to come here and spend the money to come here for one race. That was my big question. To cherry pick points. uh, Because somebody said, well, maybe they come here because they know it's going to be a weaker field. But is that worth the expense, the cost? Well, and I, and I also end up feeling like if if they're going to do this, they may have to have dropped two races, right? From the final final points structure. And if that's the case, why would you make the trip to be here? So we could theoretically have fields of 20, yeah, 30, because you can bring in 16 Americans, but then who else? You know, the Canadians, obviously we have, we have foreign women who are based here like Katerina and like Caroline Mani, but are they going to be based here anymore if they have to be over there so much? I know. I know. It's a, I don't, I really don't know how it's all going to shake out yet. So, so here's the feature of the schedule. Are you ready? Yeah. Um, if I'm doing this from memory, so I think it's close to right, but Namor stays the World Cup on the 20th. Mm-hmm. Zolder is no longer a World Cup, but it's on the 26th still. Degum is a World Cup on the 27th. No race on the 28th. This is the cursed period during Christmas, if anybody's curious. Um, there's something on the 29th. Brendine is still on the 30th. Nothing on the 31st. Here it comes. Ball on the 1st. Then uh, something else as a non-World Cup on the 2nd. And then World Cup Holst is the 3rd. So there's three days of racing in a row. The two previous are either DVVs or pre- Super Prestige races. And then the third race in a row is going to be a World Cup. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, and before Namur... I think the race in Antwerp, somebody said, is on the day of nationals, U.S. nationals. <laughs> yeah, so we got that'll that'll be interesting. Well, we'll 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 have you back on and talk about that. Yeah, as it's yeah. Going I, on. I I haven't seen the 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 other ske- part of the schedule that's been released. So I, yeah, I'm really curious how it's all going to shake out and what riders are going to you know choose to do. Are they going to go to the World Cups to get the points? But you know, like this year. They changed the, your start so that you, at a World Cup, it was right. based on a World, World Cup, Cup points. And then a UCI race was just your UCI points. Mm-hmm. But, and, you know, I mean, those those series, the DBV and all those, they pay a lot of money to, for start money. Oh, yeah. So are riders going to give that up? I, I, I don't see it happening. I don't see riders giving up the start money. I mean, the start yeah. money in a lot of ways is how they're making their yeah. money. But then again, all you have to do is start. So... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Are you going to go do a lap and then pull out because you have a World Cup the next day? And a lot I don't of questions, know. man. I mean, there's, there's a lot of questions. It's, yeah. It's going to be an interesting year. Um, so we we touched on this before. You're living your best retirement. Uh, you travel a ton. Yost, your husband, good friend of mine, travels a ton. Uh, this show branched out when when I had Chris Case on and we gave relationship advice. <laughs> so we're going to do this again here. Oh. So you and Yos travel a ton, but at least I think you have a very good relationship. How do you do it? How do you handle that and, and keep in touch, keep close? What, what's your secret? Because everybody's is different, right? Yeah. So what... Yeah. What's your secret? Now, maybe I'll bring Yos on at some point. <laughs> and see we'll if I answer. What, okay, what, Yos, you can't yes, listen to my right. answer. We're gonna have we're gonna have a blind. You know, it's 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 gonna be a game show. This is gonna be a game show now. <laughs> oh 
would be hilarious. <laughs> I think I, I might have to do this. Just, just, yeah. Yos, turn it off now. And we're going to bring you on. <laughs> we're not going to talk about any of the other great stuff you do, like WTB or racing. We're only going to talk about your answer to this question. <laughs> all right. So, so, but in all seriousness, what, what is, I mean, you guys, you guys travel a lot, like, uh-huh. and and I do too. You know, you mm-hmm. know, I travel a lot, and Breeze doesn't quite travel quite as much. But we always try to get together for dinner, and it's like, <laughs> can you get See together you dinner tonight? Right. Yeah, okay. It. it we there. we are like months away generally when we plan out a dinner because everybody's <laughs> traveling so much. So how do you yeah. and Yos yeah. handle it? Well, I think so. Both of us were married previously, so we we when we met, you know, we were kind of already established careers. We kind of already had established who we are, what we do, you know, and I think we respect that, uh, for one another. Um, we are both rather independent people too. And I think, but, and by respecting each other, I say we respect what each other does and, you know, what our past is and who we are and what makes us happy and all that. And, and know we know that we have to give each other that, that, sort of space to be, to continue to be that person and do those things that make us happy. Cause very often or very infrequently are we traveling together. Yeah. Sometimes we do get to go to events or, you know, races or whatever together, but mostly he's traveling for work and I'm traveling for work or get pulled out to do things, you know, with USA cycling, whatever. But, um, yeah, so I think it's, you know, and now with technology these days, I mean, it's easy to stay in touch, you know, even if it's just a quick text message before you go to bed or when you wake up in the morning, depending on what the time difference is, you're like, okay, it's going to be another eight <laughs> hours before I hear from him when he wakes up or, you know, whatever it might be. But I mean, we figure it out. I think, again, the biggest thing is just respecting each other and what makes us happy and being able to give each other that space and that independence to do those things that makes us happy. So you just got back from Switzerland. You were just looking at the time on your brand new Swatch, <laughs> Swatch. that you bought in the How airport. How cliche is that? And you were so cool with that thing on. Um, and <laughs> I was there when Yost picked you up at the airport. And Max will be a frequent guest on this. Max was actually house-sitting for you guys. And Yost told me what a disaster your house was when he showed up. So when you got home... Because we love to give Max Chance a hard time on the show. Uh-huh. Had he cleaned up his mess? Yes, because Yos had luckily been home already a couple days. Because so Yos was away for the weekend and was supposed to be gone longer than he was. And ended up having to say, Max, I'm coming home sooner than expected. Max misunderstood the message or something he told me later he misunderstood yeah. the message so didn't know that he needed to clean up by the time he <laughs> got there so he walks in and i can only picture from yos's description of what, <laughs> what the house looked like but all the cabinets were open the dishwasher was open i think there was food all over the counter I just, if oh, anybody yeah. knows Max Chance, has traveled with Max Chance, the boy is an unmitigated disaster. <laughs> His bag vomits everything out of the bag across the whole room. And uh, when you're fortunate enough to travel with him in Europe or China, where the rooms are minuscule, it oh. is a horrible experience. You always come home with some of his clothes. <laughs> um 
But he left his heart rate monitor. Max, if you're looking for your heart rate <laughs> monitor strap, it's at our house. Come back from <laughs> California, Max. Well, Meredith, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on with us this week. We really had a great time talking about all this stuff. And uh, I think we're going to have to have you on again. Oh, absolutely. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Meredith for coming on the pod. She'll likely be a returning guest on this show, but she'll definitely be back when we have an episode in the fall about funding for cyclocross and funding for cycling in general. As always, you can contact me directly by emailing me at offcourse at fastlabs.com. On social media, take a screenshot while you're listening to the podcast and then tag me. Fast Labs is at Real Fast Labs everywhere on the socials. And I'm at G Holicky on Instagram and at Grant Holicky on Twitter. Make sure you're subscribed to Off Course on your favorite podcast app so that you get the new show as soon as it's released. Thanks for your support, everybody. We really appreciate it. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Off Course are those of the individual and not of Fast Labs. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll see you back here next week with a new episode. <laughs>